Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. Welcome to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. This is episode 50. That is half of 100. What do you think about that, Kyler? It's a big deal, man, especially for something that uh, uh, that was, you know, we started three years ago. Back before, back before, I think we got it a year before podcasts got really, really popular. So doing 50 is, is crazy. It just goes to show how far you can take something if you just don't stop. You know, <laughs> it just refused. You just if refused, you just don't quit, you refuse to bow to the cosmos. If, if you if you refuse to quit, you get, like I feel like Forrest Gump of podcasts right now. Yeah, I feel like we've seen yeah. both both. Uh, <laughs> I bo- just both kept coasts. running. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, um, it's pretty cool, man. And you know what else is neat is um is you know my my buddies my buddies Jacob and Andrew at the Southern Southern Outdoorsman podcast they've been doing it um the same amount of time like i think we started the same year maybe they got started a little bit before we did just by you know coincidence i didn't know them back then but they had like episode 160 or something um but they're psychotic in the fact that they do an episode a week all year long all year yeah. And uh, well, I told them I'm they're the outdoorsmen, that. and there's outdoorsmen activities year round. Uh, sure, but bow hunting, there's really only. I mean, I'm not, not. I guess that's not to say that you can't bow hunt different things throughout the year, as far as bow fishing and hog hunting and things. But generally speaking, in Louis, we are Louisiana bow hunter, and as far as Louisiana goes, and as far as bow hunting goes, it's archery deer. For the most part, so we're seasonal, 
And I agree, we are seasonal. That's that's why we, we try and keep it within the season. We try and keep it from September to February. Um, we want to have your attention during the season. And then we also recognize the fact that everybody else likes to bass fish or turkey hunt or has baseball or soccer or, or, or whatever else they have going on in the summertime. So we, we're compartmentalized just like our Louisiana outdoorsmen are as well. Um, but uh, episode 50 is cool. I'm, I'm excited about it, man. I think it's a, a big deal. And like I said earlier, it's amazing how far you can go with something if you just don't stop. Yep. So we are the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast presented by Relentless Boats. Relentless Boats is a local Louisiana-made boat manufacturer down in Thibodeau. They've been a longtime supporter and uh, the title sponsor of the podcast this season. And um, just encourage you to go check them out at RelentlessBoatsLA.com. Follow them on Facebook and Instagram. Lots of cool things coming in 2021. They are booked up on custom builds for the remainder of the year. But uh, you can check out the dealer network. And uh, they're making some really cool boats and got a lot of, uh, of really cool new stuff coming in the future. So, uh, Relentless Boats and RelentlessBoatsLA.com. So, um, we're, we're, we're running up here on the second weekend of the season. So, we're, we're recording and releasing here uh, kind of officially one week into deer season. And um, yeah. a lot of people have been hunting and we've had a lot of uh, reaction, feedback, uh, coming in, we're seeing a lot of things on Louisiana Bow Hunter and across social media and just uh, across the community in general. So, uh, how was your first week of, of hunting season, Kyle? My first week, I, I feel I'm still riding a high right now. I feel like uh, I feel like I got my groove back, man. I I, uh, I was a very bad man to public land deer over the weekend. Um, I killed three does and five hunts. I'm done with doe hunting for the whole year. Never done that in my life. Um, and uh, you know, I, I felt like I, I went into a piece of property with a solid game plan. Solid chess piece game plan best based on the wind and um i, I did a little bit of pre-scouting this year which i've never done that in my my life um and i went in and um i had a really good north wind northwest wind plan crossed about 800 yards of swamp i think i talked about this on the last episode um because we recorded that one on opening day right that was last yeah. thursday yeah um and um and so Friday, Christian Dubois came hunting with me. Um, he, I put him on a deer on Friday. Um, and Saturday and Sunday, I killed both mornings in brand new spots, both times, never stepped foot on them before. Pointed at a map, like Babe Ruth pointed to left field with my bat and was like, that's where I'm going to kill a deer. And did it three times and um, had a blast, man. Uh, had, a, had a lot of fun. Now, Here's, here's one thing that uh, hadn't, I didn't, I honestly didn't realize the value of until I, I, like I got to start dragging out deer. I've been working out since January of last year. Like I work out twice a week, nothing crazy. I'm not trying to like do anything other than stop getting fat. And I do legs once a day and once a week. And, um, and I have never skipped a week. I might have had to reschedule, but I never skipped a week. I drug out four deer this weekend. I pulled out every single deer out of the woods and never got winded or tired or just never had to, like, sit down and catch my breath. That made a huge difference. I can climb trees better. And I'm a big guy. I'm 275. I haven't lost a lot of weight because I put on muscle. But 
that's made a huge difference, man. And I really underestimated the value of that for bow season and deer season in general. Like I just feel better in the woods, especially when it comes to having to pack out. So that's made a big deal. Yeah. Well, physical fitness is a big deal. And if you, this is our audience, so it's fair to say this. I mean, obviously if you're a much more casual hunter, uh, a firearm hunter, and you just kind of pick and choose, uh, times to hunt throughout the season and, and you're i'm not saying this derogatorily at all I'm, I'm just saying you know you choose to go and just kind of hunt with your rifle out of a box stand on a holiday weekend certain times maybe it's not that big of a deal but if you're a bow hunter you like it or not regardless of how you choose to hunt you're, you're going to be more active the act yeah. the, the the physical activity of shooting a bow and being good with it requires you to have some physical uh, ability you need to have you know um not only strength and, and core strength, but but uh, you need to have the stamina to get out there and shoot a bunch and practice and uh, the physical core strength to ma- maintain yourself in the, mo- in the heat of the moment when the adrenaline's high. And, uh, and then, like you said, climbing trees, um, moving spots around, because that's what it takes to get on deer with a bow consistently, um, is moving stands around, climbing different trees, and then, of course, with a bow, um, they don't they typically don't drop in the food plot where you can drive right up to them <laughs> no and they never <laughs> run closer to the truck either no not very often yeah and so, if you're hunting junica hills they will be at the bottom yeah. of the hill you hunt they any, have never yeah. died on top of the hill no deer always go down they go down no matter where yep. they're at they typically go down if they can yep so yeah that's that's a pretty good point i mean as far as um as far as our community and and when I say our community, I'm referring to the Louisiana bow hunter community. Um, we've been seeing uh, some great opening day interaction, not only with harvest numbers, but just uh, the number of people that have had good hunts uh, that are, are and really enjoying this opening week weather. And one of the things that we've noticed that we've talked about was we've seen an increased number of interactions and harvest with velvet bucks this year as opposed mm. to years in the past so never seen anything like it man yeah, it's been it's, awesome to watch and it, it's one of those things that it's the unicorn for bow hunters and what i mean mm-hmm. by that is uh or or, or maybe it's more ap- aptly uh said the 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 sasquatch the bigfoot maybe that <laughs> that sounds a little better than unico- <laughs> unicorn when it comes to outdoorsmen and hunters but it's kind of one of those things it's always in the back of your mind but it's so far out of reach that we just forget about it but each year it is there you know you're always thinking that is there and then this year it's right in front of us so we thought it would be a really cool idea for uh this 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 episode being week two to have someone who can talk a little bit more about the science behind velvet antlers and why we might be seeing an uptick in that this year and just some ideas about uh that and, and what could be contributing factors to all of those um those things that we're seeing and so we reached out to the department of wildlife fisheries and we have our uh state deer program manager jonathan bordelon is going to join us here in just a minute and we're going to discuss with him more about some of these uh opening week observations and specifically ask him some questions about the velvet stuff and uh, he's also going to talk a little bit more just about what's going on with uh deer biology in the state uh, mm-hmm. right now he's the deer manager so um before we do that remind you guys we have um a big sale going on at scree uh scree extreme whitetail gear as we're branding here in the fall and 
got a couple more days left through the middle of the month where you get an instant 20% off savings on the website for the whitetail, all the whitetail bundles. Um, actually, mule deer bundles too if you were to be going out on a mule deer hunt. But uh, Scree is a performance layering system. So the reason that they offer these bundles is because really the whole point is to have um, layers and it's a system that builds upon itself. So um, obviously quality base layer mids outers and all that kind of stuff so they bundle it together because the idea is to have it in in a system so um it's a great opportunity i've had several people reach out to me uh over the last week asking about sizing and and just some opinions about it so we appreciate everyone supporting our supporters and go check them out at screegear.com and uh, again 20 percent off I think it's through the 12th of October, but it might be the 15th of October, and a, scree, and a free Scree t-shirt while supplies last with any purchase over $100. Nice. So, um, let's go ahead and bring in Jonathan Bordelon from the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. Okay, Mr. Jonathan Bordelon from the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries joins us on the podcast. Jonathan, how are you doing today, man? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself in terms of, uh, your tenure with the department, your, your position there, and, uh, I guess, uh, your, just your career up to this point. Okay. Um, I started with the department 21 years ago. Um, the last seven of those years I've actually spent in the deer program. So, uh, my responsibility is deer management on both public and private lands. Also, um, tracking, uh, harvest and other metrics that we measure. Uh, that are related to deer and deer hunting. Okay, cool. So, um, uh, you know, one of the reasons that um, we had decided that you would be an awesome person to talk to this week is uh, we have noticed a trend just here in the first week of deer season 2020, not only in our harvest, uh, but trail cams and just a lot of people are seeing velvet bucks. And we think maybe more so than in years past and and we all have our theories and if you follow along the Louisiana Bowhunter community with Facebook or the community page or any of these places uh, it's a topic that's been talked about and we wanted to touch on it but we thought uh, who better than the head of the deer program for the department um, to kind of give us some information from your perspective from a science and uh, wildlife biology perspective as to what might be attributing to some of these things and some of the science behind velvet antler, you know, as it is. Sure, and I'll I'll take a a stab at that. You know, in general, um, you know, across our state, we're using general terms, but we have a pretty diverse or a wide range of breeding dates in Louisiana, uh, the earliest of which are in southwest Louisiana, and of course the latest uh, typically occur along some of the river parishes. And with that, those annual cycles are going to vary across the state. So deer are shedding antlers at different times, regrowing them at others, and, and obviously uh, putting on velvet, uh, of you know, uh, shedding velvet at at different times depending on that annual cycle that is centered around the breeding period. So the, the whole objective of those antlers is, you know, is, is to have them as part of the breeding process. So with that, uh, since they are um, used for whether it's for um, establishing dominance, whether it's attracting mates, there's a whole list of reasons of, of what the function of antlers, or at least what, why deer do possess antlers in the first place. 
and with that, those antlers are regrowing each year. Typically, those antlers, um, you know, they're going to be triggered by certain hormonal responses. So when testosterone levels drop to a certain point after breeding uh, ceases, then those antlers are going to be cast. Then that cycle is going to start over again. After about a month, those scabs will eventually give way to new antlers. And after about 24 weeks of antler growth, um, those velvet antlers are about as large as they're going to get. And at which time, about another month goes by, and those antlers are simply just hardening at that time. They're not necessarily growing, but they're hardening, and that velvet eventually uh, becomes dry, and it's stripped away uh, by the deer. And that process only takes a day or two. So there's a lot that, there's a lot that comes together uh, in a short period of time when you're talking about going from a velvet-antlered buck to a, a buck that has shed. Um, not shed, it's velvet in this case, not its antlers. But um, why folks are seeing so many, very difficult to say because the annual cycle involved is triggered, you know, certainly by photo period. That's really the trigger or the catalyst for that whole cycle, even the, the does that are coming into estrus. Um, that, that is all tied to photo period. And one of the things that folks would think of with photo period, you know, obviously it's just the amount of daylight uh, you would think, well, why don't all deer then uh, have those same annual cycles? Well, the photo period's a trigger, but there's been adaptations through time. Uh, those adaptations led to maybe better reproductive success in the form of producing fawns that are going to survive. Uh, those adaptations over a year, over the years, have developed into these synchronized breeding times. Now, but that breeding is still all correlated to that photo period, which is going to release certain hormones. In the case of deer, there's, um, there's insulin-like growth hormone and testosterone. And as those increase, um, you know, those antlers begin to grow and eventually harden, um, setting stage for the next breeding season. And then once that ceases, drops again. But to say why it's persisting a little bit later than past year is very difficult to say. I think it's important that whoever, wherever it is being observed, it, it's first to ask the question of whether it's being observed in all deer or in just a few animals. In addition to that, what is the age of those animals where it's being observed? Uh, obviously, I've seen some pretty good game, uh, some pretty good harvest pictures already this year from some of the late breeding areas where the season opened on October 1st. Uh, both with and without velvet, uh, and that without velvet, like I said, it, that can go from velvet to without velvet in a matter of, of a, you know, 24 to 48 hours to have a clean, polished antler. So um, we may be just catching the very tail end of what we what we often just miss in previous years. But there's no easy explanation since that photo period is the driver and it's part of an annual cycle. Uh, I would think that. The fact that we're still seeing a few velvet deer uh, would be chalked up to just some individual deer and not necessarily a shift in that total breeding chronology uh, because that would be another plausible answer would be that if there's a shift, if that entire process last year was delayed for some reason, meaning breeding didn't occur as rapidly uh, and complete as soon as it normally would have then you would then see um, maybe a, an extended breeding period in the previous year, which could have potentially delayed that entire process yeah. manifesting itself again this year. And case in point, you know, sex ratios would matter, uh, buck age structure would matter, where deer densities uh, or sex ratios, better said, 
or, or closer to one-to-one, -one, uh, then that breeding is going to occur in a very short period of time. The majority of those that come into estrus are going to be bred during that first cycle. So that whole process could then be compressed. I don't want to speculate as far as why some folks are observing, um, you know, later uh, velvet this year. But obviously, um, you know, those sex ratios, how balanced they are, if there's extended breeding in their area, you know, could that contribute, you know, possibly. Uh, but again, that's speculative, but it, it could be a contributing factor. Uh, would, it, would, the the, um, part, would the full moon have anything to do with it, with it being the open no, release of this it's, photo period? It's, it's, it's independent of that. Uh, was that photo period really just with, with day length? Um, and, and that's unknown. That, that stuff has experimented many years ago. There was a researcher who had done extensive work on that. His, his last name was, was Ghost. Uh, and, and what he had found, uh, they had actually done experimentation with artificial lighting, uh, to actually, to actually um, cause deer to grow even uh, multiple sets of antlers in a year just by controlling the artificial light that they were living under in an enclosed setting. Uh, in addition, he had done some work where deer were moved to the southern hemisphere from the northern hemisphere. Those deer, their whole cycle shifted by six months because of the differences in seasons. So uh, wow. there definitely is that, that strong correlation between um, you know, so it's it, there's no doubt what the trigger is, um, you know, but then those responses, um, you know, that insulin-like growth hormone, uh, testosterone, those are likely players in the growing and eventual hardening and eventual even casting when the antlers are shed, um, you know, in the early spring. Uh, you know, levels of, of those particular hormones obviously are, are playing a role in that. But to answer the question about late, late uh, velvet, really some of what we speculated on would be my best guess. So based off of what you were just saying with the studies that have been done and the science that is known about the photo period and the, uh, the exposure to daylight, does that do, what does that do to dispel the myth that we've all, I, I, I'm calling it a myth and I shouldn't, dispel the, the, uh, the common talking point that we hear about when people say, oh, well, this area over here has a different rut because they have deer that were brought in generations ago from up north and they still breed at the same time that they used to breed up north. Based off what you're saying, that shouldn't be the case because you're saying that scientists have successfully manipulated that in deer simply by changing their exposure to light. Correct. And in the case of northern deer in Louisiana, it's important to remember that our deer actually, and we did this particular research just a few years ago, we did a DNA uh, meta-analysis where uh, DNA was collected from not just Louisiana, but other Gulf Coast states. And the reason that DNA was collected was because of the extensive stocking that was done in, mostly in the 40s, 50s, and 60s across the southeast, including Louisiana. And during that time, Louisiana was no exception. We had stocked uh, deer from the state of Wisconsin. Uh, most of those were in the 1950s and, and maybe some in the 60s. I don't remember the exact numbers, but the majority in the 50s. And at that time, of course, uh, vast parts of Louisiana uh, that had very few or even no deer. And at that time, uh, deer weren't just stocked, though, from one stocking source. If the objective was to stock 
a certain amount of deer into a particular parish, they use multiple sources. So they may have moved deer from a portion of Louisiana where there were where there was a viable population. They trapped, captured deer in that location and used them for a stocking source and maybe supplemented that stocking source with deer that were trucked in from Wisconsin. And the DNA study actually, as far as Louisiana goes, showed no trace or, or any markers related to the genetics of Wisconsin deer. And that, that was to the surprise of many. And, of course, that was a very complex study that had specialized researchers and had specialized equipment that was utilized for those DNA signatures. And what the researchers were able to come away with was that, you know, overall, most of the deer, at least in the southeast, were indigenous to the southeast. Um, for whatever reason, those deer that were moved from those northern latitudes simply did not make it down here. In all likelihood, it was probably tied to the diseases that are endemic to the southeast, such as hemorrhagic disease, uh, EHD, which is epizootic hemorrhagic disease, or blue tongue, which is another viral hemorrhagic disease. And the deer from those northern latitudes really just had no resistance to those diseases where our deer are exposed to those annually and have a certain amount of resistance. And with that being said, there's a more than likely chance that those deer simply died off before they could get a, you know get a beyond that bottleneck and produce enough uh, offspring and a sizable enough population to have a genetic influence. So their genetics likely got watered down very quickly. In addition to that, most of those animals did die. But getting back to the photo period, the photo period in Louisiana is roughly the same. Um, across the vast majority of our state. It's going to vary very little in a state the size of Louisiana from North Louisiana to South Louisiana. There's a slight difference as, you, you know, as you're moving closer to the equator, but relatively speaking in a state this small, pretty narrow. But what we do see is we see a wide range of breeding dates, and it's like, well, why is that? And many of those are just adaptations to when it is best to breed, but it's still that same trigger that's going to uh, set off that opportune time for that cycle to begin. So it's a different threshold, if that makes any sense, of photo period. Not every threshold is the same to trigger yeah. those responses, but it's that specific threshold that has to be met. And we still see some of that in our state. Through restockings, you look at our, our breeding maps, um, you can look and you'll see that September, October breeding in southwest Louisiana You'll see the January breeding along the river parishes in parts of southeast Louisiana. But you'll also see a lot of November breeding. And one example I'll give, and it'll be the only one specific to this, the deer in East Louisiana Parish in the 1950s were moved or stocked from Red Dirt Preserve, which is in northwestern Louisiana. And that particular breeding chronology actually showed up in that stocking area still to this day. So that particular area... They weren't introducing deer where they were already deer. Those deer basically were a pioneering population, meaning they were stocked there, and they're, you know, they basically did not get watered down, uh, at least in that particular vicinity. So they were allowed to expand and populate that landscape. And as a result, uh, you know, portions of East Feliciana have the exact same breeding chronology as the parent population over on Red Dirt Preserve. Uh, in, in parts of uh, northwest Louisiana, Natchitoches Parish, uh, 
comes to mind as as probably the the bulk of where those deer were captured and moved from. Well, that's that's interesting because I'm I'm in East Feliciana Parish myself. And yeah, and there's a range there. Yeah, that, it I, that was part uh, somewhat. Um, what came to mind for me is, you know, I hunt a property here in East Feliciana Parish at my home that's pretty much right square in the middle of the parish and it is you know it's undeniable that we have we don't have a defined rut or defined breeding period it's better defined as scattered because not only in what we see from uh the fawns this time of the year you know you see a very wide range of birth dates uh when you start to see the fawns show up you see them showing up um early and then all the way into the first part of the season and then also you know just sit the i i can personally attest to the fact that i watched rutting uh or or pre-rutting activity as early as middle november and as late as middle january and i know some of that is 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 circumstantial as to you know uh uh, individual deer you know just late going in or didn't get bred or whatever but um right it it has always been very interesting to me how you can go down to the marshes in i believe it's area seven i think it is where they have the october rifle season and the deer are full-blown chasing does and rutting in the middle of october and then you know other parts of the state they don't see that activity until christmas that's correct and east louisiana is kind of a melting pot as far as it it's where you have it all kind of merges together so you have a lot of variation in that particular parish and it's funny you mentioned um saint mary and and of course saint mary and iberia at least coastal that deer area seven i was actually on the phone earlier today with a um with a with a manager down there who manages a private property that that's primarily utilized for recreational deer hunting, and on that particular property we were talking about surge levels and what they saw after Hurricane Laura and basically just touching base in advance of the pending storm, and um, he mentioned that um, you know for them uh, they begin they start to see chasing um, right around usually about. The 20th of September, and I think most folks in Louisiana who hunt, uh, you know, the northern northwest Louisiana pine hardwood forest or the river parishes or southeast Louisiana, are probably they they most of them are would probably be shocked to even know that um, you know there's chasing going on, uh, you know, on September 20th, um, and by the time October rolls around, not only uh, are deer breeding, but you know several have already been bred. So we we've confirmed breeding through herd health checks, um, you know, just through fetal measurements. Um, we certainly documented uh, plenty of late September breeding down in that part of the world. So very, very diverse. And that would certainly be an area that you would not expect to see uh, a deer with velvet because simply that whole process is so much, uh, it's moved up so far in advance of what you're used to seeing in the river parishes in, in northern Louisiana. Matter of fact, if you're hunting that area around Christmas time, you probably don't want to grab a deer by the antlers to uh, to drag them because there's a good chance that that you could hmm. they could come off, you know. So that, of course those that, seasons that, those seasons end then. So there's a you know there's a reason for that much earlier season and earlier into the season to uh, that, you know, capitalize and take a, advantage. 
that brings up a, a question that I've got. You, you, you uh, kind of pushed past this earlier when we were talking earlier about um, antler growth in velvet. It, I, I even feel kind of silly asking this, but you've really piqued my interest with how you led into this. Why do deer have antlers? What are all the reasons? Because you, you made it sound like there's way more reasons than just um, uh, yeah. than just dominance. <clears throat> yeah, and it's it's certainly not um, – there's not an answer. There's some thoughts to why. And there's been you know, folks who have covered the subject, um, you know, what are antlers, what are they used for, are they, or are they for defense – are they for, you know, fighting hierarchy, mate selection? Well, obviously, if it was simply for defense, um, you, you, you would want to have them all year and not just during a portion of the year. So in all likelihood, you think about antlers and when they occur, well, they occur in and around the, the time at which deer are bred. You know, that they're grown and eventually, um, you know, when they're polished and, and, and um, the growth is complete, then when does that coincide? That actually coincides with what we consider the breeding season, uh, which is, you know, that the fall and winter in most of Louisiana. And you even look at those antlers, you know, deer are going to push each other around. They're going to break those antlers. So, you know, cast and regrow them. In addition, the antlers, obviously everyone knows they'll get larger with age. So, um, when deer are younger, they're, you know, they're still growing skeletally. Uh, you know, they're growing in length and girth. I'm talking about just in body size. Um, so only a certain amount of, you know, nutrients in those cases or, you know, and a certain amount of energy is going to be expended towards growing those antlers. At that point, that animal's trying to develop and become a competitor for breeding. Not that he can't breed at a year and a half. He's certainly uh, able to from a, from a you know, development standpoint, and, but as far as, hierarchy or where he would rank, uh, obviously he's going to have to attain some size and age to, um, to rank up there and have a better opportunity for breeding. And with that, with each passing year, those antlers are going to get larger and larger. Finally, at about four and a half years of age, that animal's reached its skeletal maximum as far as skeletal growth. And with that, you know, they may still increase with, in girth and put on more muscle mass um, you know, with the upcoming years, they may reach their peak body mass. It, it could be at six, seven, eight years old. Um, but regardless, during those years, they're basically growing these very large an antlers relative to where their range is. So those animals have reached their antler potential. And I will tell you this. There was some research done. It was through Mississippi State. The researcher is Daniel Marina. And he was working under the direction of Dr. Steve Damaris and Dr. Bronson Strickler at Mississippi State University. They actually did some work as far as what role did antlers play in mate selection. And what they did is to rule out other potential effects of age, uh, maybe other dominant effects, they artificially man, uh, manipulated the antlers on the animals. So how do you do that? They actually removed those antlers just above the bases, put in a basically what would be a female coupler or fitting above that antler, and then screwed an exaggerated large antler on top of that. And you had one with large and one with um, one with oversized antlers would be the best term for it. And then you had another buck with undersized. Then those deer were kept in paddocks, and that doe would then have an option to 
either approach the fence with the large antlered buck or the fence with the small antlered buck. And in those particular cases, it at least appeared when those two deer weren't in that same pen and able to push each other around, those females, the majority of the time, would select that male with the largest antlers. And why is that? Well, the thought is that that's a sign of health. Um, you know, obviously to grow those, it's a sign of fitness and health, and that would be something you'd want to pass fitness and health to your offspring. So those antlers are an attraction. They're also used to, you know, push each other around and help establish that hierarchy or dominance uh, when it comes to breeding, which is can, can be extremely competitive where sex ratios are even and age structure is old. So, you know, that's probably some of the reasons uh, for those antlers. And once the breeding season's over, what happens? Well, those antlers fall off again. It's like the job is done, then you're focused on other things, and then that whole process of regrowing them occurs before the next season. So, again, a lot of this is just good campfire talk. Um, there's certainly subject matter experts that are even more knowledgeable and could use more technical terms uh, in reference to that entire process as far as even introduce some other theories as to why those antlers are there. But just wanted to share a little more since you asked as far as that research done at Mississippi State and, and just some additional thoughts, um, even though it is somewhat of an opinion as to what I thought uh, or why I think antlers are important and why they occur when they occur. Yeah, that's that's all really great information. So interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, – I think – so – I'll kind of wrap that portion uh, of our conversation up with, with this. Um, Kyler and I have discussed this leading up to choosing this this topic, uh, so to speak, for, for this week's podcast. And, you know, we're kind of both in agreement that a lot of times we overthink a lot of things, and, and we kind of both feel like the increase in presence of velvet antler bucks this season – might have a lot more to do with the fact that we've had much more favorable weather and a lot more bucks are just showing up naturally because they're, they're, there's more daylight movement. These deer are more active. We've had cooler temperatures to start out the season. And not only has that put more bucks on their feet, it's put more, probably more hunters in the woods for lots of reasons this year. And, um, and, and maybe that's an oversimplification. But, um, you know, based off the science and stuff that you shared with us, uh, it further, uh, it, to me, it further impresses on me that maybe we're overthinking a little bit. Maybe there's always this diversity of velvet bucks out there to be had the first week of the season. It's just oftentimes we're not in a coronavirus year. There's not as many people with as much free time to start the season off on opening day, and we certainly don't have the weather that's more conducive to seeing these deer and, and having an opportunity at these deer. So so maybe maybe it's just that. But um, no, but those were some great points, and and those certainly are factors uh, that contribute. You know, more more hunters present, and you know, good weather, which you know is usually associated with better yeah. with increased movement, and they're just encountering those animals yeah. and and encountering them maybe at a at a greater rate. So well, that's, it, that's it, a great point. We all know as hunters that throughout the season, when the weather gets better, whether it's early in the season or middle of the season or whatever, when we have good weather patterns, we we tend to get more pictures. We tend to see more deer from the stand and our harvest, as far as bucks go. Um, we can all agree, I think, that weather plays such a huge factor in deer hunting in general that, that maybe we're just overthinking it. Um, you know, while we have you on, um, I think it would be 
only fair for us to just ask kind of, uh, you know, just very uh, high level, you know, what's going on in the deer program as far as 2020 goes, you know, what, what kind of things are going on in the department? What are you guys up to? And I guess a kind of a state of the union of the deer program for, uh, for the department. Yeah. 2020 obviously has, has, has not been without its challenges. Um, we've been dealing with what we thought was a big natural, uh, disaster event in the form of floods, uh, both 2019, of course, really going back to 2011, the past 10 years, uh, just flooding in general in those river parishes. And many of those parishes are some of our high harvest parish where deer per forested acre harvests are the highest we have in the state. So those areas were a concern. We've been seeing um, what we what we know now to be a reduced farm crop in response to late summer flooding in both 2015 and again in 2019. Uh, that actually was part of another study. Uh, we actually were able to combine our data with Mississippi and have Mississippi State do a meta-analysis looking at the effects of flooding, seasonal flooding, on different deer measurements, anywhere from antler growth to body uh, growth per age class to lactation. And we broke flooding into winter, spring, and summer flooding. And uh, what we actually observed was the effects of flooding, you know, what is the effect? Well, it really depends on when. And for the most part, when we have winter floods, spring floods, we uh, weren't really able to discern any differences in growth and development of deer um, as far as body weights, antlers, uh, reproductive measurement in the form of lactation, which is simply a a f- adult female producing milk during the time of harvest in the fall. Uh, seemed like whether you had spring flooding or not, uh, that was less of a player. There were some small things in there. I'll skip those small ones and kind of cut to the major. But the one major effect that we did identify was the fact that when we saw summer flooding that basically crossed over the line of which fawning began, then there was a certainly a measurable decrease in that fall's farm crop. So um, that being said, in 2019 and again, in, well, started in 15 and again in 19, with those late summer floods, we did document a much reduced farm crop in the form of lactation, at least, uh, here in the river parishes in Louisiana. And the significance of that is there's just a lot of deer hunting that goes on, whether it's in the Atchafalaya Basin the parishes along the Atchafalaya River and certainly the parishes along the Mississippi River. Uh, that's affecting a lot of deer country in this state. Um, and, and the result of that was, you know, a reduced recruitment those years. So that was uh, that analysis and having that data, that data was actually published in the Journal of Wildlife last year. So coming into this year, really we were looking at a lot of properties, including our own wildlife management areas that were in the footprint of that study to see what habitat response was like, to, to see what presence, as far as presence in the form of deer browse and as far as utilization of that deer browse. So we spent a lot of time in 2020 uh, evaluating those habitats. And to the surprise, uh, we saw a pretty good response this year in browse uh, simply because while we did have spring flooding, it was down um, before the summer, and that afforded 
uh, some time for green up and growth, and we did a lot of summer evaluations on properties across the state. Matter of fact, we did more browse surveys in 2020 than we had ever done before, both on public and private land, and really just trying to get a handle on, um, you know, what's out there for deer to browse on and, and how much of it's being used. And the importance of that, folks may wonder, why in the world are you looking at plants? Well, we actually can't count deer. We don't know how many of them are out there. But what we do know is is their browsers and selective browsers at that. And they're going to select the most nutritious plants on the landscape, and they're going to browse those first. So if we can look at the percentage of those important species that are being browsed as well as the number of species uh, present, that are being utilized by deer, that gives us a good index as far as the amount of, you know, browse that's being used on that landscape. And what we saw this year was pretty encouraging. Um, a lot of folks on private lands had reduced their antlerless harvest. Uh, many of our DMAC clubs that we worked with, we had actually lowered their tag allotments for the previous season based on an anticipated reduction in that fall farm crop. So this year, some of the browse numbers that we were looking at were really right on par, or even some of them were above where they were before the last flood event. So that was pretty encouraging. What that told us was, despite a drop in fawn numbers, we still had a pretty good number of deer, at least at a level when we look at an index such as browse utilization, that was comparable to what it was before the flood. So we were very excited about the upcoming season, of course, weather, as you already mentioned, is going to play an important role in hunter success. But at least from the outset, what we anticipated this year was a much improved farm crop. We, it, we anticipated deer to be in very good condition because of the good growing conditions across most of Louisiana this year. So it was an, it, that was where we spent a lot of our time and effort, and the outlook was very promising. Of course, what's happened since then with Hurricane Laura, and now with the approach of a second major hurricane to Louisiana, you know, what will the effects of that be? And, and um, yeah. you know, in, gen in general, you know, what was very optimistic outlook, uh, you know, certainly has now been replaced with new concerns that aren't even tied or related to river flooding. So, we'll, you know, we'll do plenty of evaluation and assessment of that. Obviously, the surge component of these storms is what is most detrimental to deer simply because of that fast influx of water in locations that offer very little high ground or refuge for deer. Believe it or not, most deer survive these events. It's hard to imagine anything surviving them, but most I'm talking about in coastal Louisiana will, but there certainly will be some mortality and the height and extent of the particular surge uh, of the surge that comes in is, is going to dictate, you know, just how much of that. But uh, just to, you know, to answer your question, that's really was our focus. It was kind of post flood, see where we stood and, and do a lot more habitat work um, than what we had done before in the form of evaluations. And that's where we were in 2020. It's just as of uh, just here recently, our, our focus has been shifted a little with, with the storms that, we've had to deal with um, already this year. Well, Kyler, I, 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 this has been a great conversation, and, you know, we could probably talk all day long, and, and you've got a wealth of information that I know our listeners are uh, just eating up. But, uh, Kyler, you got anything else before we wrap it up with Jonathan? 
Yeah, yeah. Two two things. Number one, just sure. like Locke said, we we've got to have you on again because my we this could be a four hour podcast if I let it because you have got some great insight on things that we, we've all either wondered or. Um, about deer or uh, maybe, like I said, about antler growth. I'd never thought about why deer hurt antler. What's, what's the purpose of them? Um, and so uh, we'd love to have you on again and, and later in the season sure. and talk some more about uh, about deer. But um, one of the questions yeah. that I had for you was you and I have been talking for a few years, I think two years now, about possibly bringing Tunica Hills into Area 6 um, dates. Is that something that's on the table for next season possibly? Yeah, we had discussed that, and that's certainly something that, you know, anytime that we can mimic outside dates, we try to just for a simplification of rules. In the case of Tunica Hills, uh, what we've identified there is really our most limiting factor at this time is just available browse. And it's, uh, you know, some of that's going to be difficult to overcome at this time because of the pulpwood market and just our really inability to market and sell hardwood timber, at least pulpwood timber at this time. The thought is right now the herd, um, the majority of deer tunica is very different from most of our wildlife management areas and the fact that almost wildlife management areas, as in the state in general, our harvest is driven by the success of modern farm hunters. Uh, But in the case of tunica, roughly, you know, well over half, but in some years, uh, upwards of, you know, 75% of the deer harvested on Tunica are actually harvested by archers, and, and that's great for archers, um, you know, and, and it's a great archery area, but at this time, our WMA deer management plan, in order to expand any season and expand take, we need to really show an upward trajectory in deer herbivory and declines in deer condition that would be associated with density-dependent responses, meaning there's so many deer competing with one another that we feel we need to harvest more deer. And, Kyler, if you hunt there, unfortunately, you realize that probably not in the heyday of deer numbers for Tunica Hills, if anything, the harvest and subsequent number of deer is probably lower than what it would have been even just 10 years ago when habitat conditions were slightly better, meaning at that time you just did not have quite the amount of canopy closure across the majority of the WMA. So a couple of things need to happen there. We would like to expand that opportunity, offer more days, and offer more opportunity for harvest. But I think more importantly, we really need to try to get some habitat work done on that particular WMA in West Feliciana to – increase not only the carrying capacity but the condition of the deer herd and the subsequent reproductive condition which then will fuel the ability to harvest more animals and sustain that harvest but it's certainly something we discuss and it was very contentious in the form of whether we should make that expansion or not and it, it really came down to the triggers that are established within those WMA management plans and in this particular case Things were pointing towards a herd that was not expanding and in need of increased harvest, but it would have been nice to just afford hunters more days. And I think that's our goal and objective is to eventually get there, is to actually have more days, be able to sustain a higher harvest, but we'd like to do it on a habitat that's been improved, that's more productive and able to not only carry more deer, but carry more deer that are healthy and productive. So that's the goal there. Gotcha. All right. So... 
So I need to bring a chainsaw, cut a couple of trees down, get some brows up. Is that what you're saying? That's the that's the thought. That's the idea. Yep, and, and we're certainly I, I, certainly reading, uh, reading, certainly I'm looking at up that. Putting down. Yeah, yes, I got you. I understand, and I agree with you. You know, Tunica Hills. Like we we don't typically you know name hunting places in Louisiana, but Tunica Hills is no secret. Um, but we. Um, I have not been hunting tunica that long, but maybe it's just the 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 cool thing to say these days. But I hear from a lot of people, oh, this place isn't what it used to be five years ago, ten years ago, whatnot. Um, you know, I've you know, I, I to add to that, um, I think um, it's important for us all to kind of consider the source from people that are giving you. Um, their perspective of, uh, you know, deer activity, you know, this could be a guy that walks 200 yards from his truck. That's telling me that tunica sucks. You know what I mean? Um, and and so uh, I I personally never had much trouble seeing deer in tunica, but I'm not going to hunt, um, you know, right off the four wheeler trail over a food plot. That's not me. So, um, You know, I would love to see it match up with the rest of the area six dates one day because I know um, good and well that there's a lot of uh, deer activity up and in, in through mid February out there. Um, sure. And, uh, but if you're saying that the herd isn't expanding, well, then maybe that's best for it. You know, we don't need to be killing more deer if it's shrinking. You know, so yeah, and um, that's really based on on basically. Things such as browse indices, you know, or is while you can't, you don't know how many deer are there. If, if you're measuring through transects and you're consistently measuring the same transects, are you seeing more plant use or less? And obviously, if you're seeing less plant use, and with the, you know, then what that's telling you, if, if the relative abundance of those plants remains the same, then there's less deer out there browsing them, you know. So it. It's all crude ways, but it's the only true indices that we can use to, to you know, put a quantitative answer or provide a quantitative um, answer to uh, a question that would otherwise be somewhat subjective. So it's our it's our best attempt to assign a number to something that would otherwise just you know be based on personal observation and opinion. Gotcha. Well, well, um, I appreciate all the information, Jonathan, so much. It's been very sure. informative. Thank yep. you. It's great, great information, and, and like Kyler said, uh, maybe someday in the future we'll have another conversation where we can deep dive more into some of these topics and, and more. But for the time being, sure. uh, be safe in, in with the upcoming weather this weekend. And we, you know, as a community, we really appreciate the work that the department does to protect and and serve our natural resources. And uh, so, you know, just a big shout out to you guys and, and feel like we're fortunate to be in a state that does have a very active and engaging uh, Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. So thank you for that Absolutely. and thank you for your time. Well, thanks, gentlemen. Thank you all and look forward to, to speaking with you all again. Hey, we really appreciate you joining us, Jonathan. Um, a ton of great information there, as, as everybody heard. And, and like I said, we want to have him on again. We've, I've got a dozen other questions about a dozen other topics uh, related to deer and deer management that I think um, would make some great episodes in the future. Um, 
you know, some of the some of the points he made about velvet and, and even antlers in general. I had I like I said, I didn't realize I never really understood all the reasons why a deer has antlers other than um, maybe dominance or protection. That's what I would have defaulted yeah. to. Um, so I thought that was cool. And then learning about the rut is interesting. Um, I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who really believes that he has like full-blooded Wisconsin deer on his property in Northeast Louisiana. And from what we just heard from Jonathan, he thinks they all died off relatively quickly. And the, the, um, the relocated Louisiana herd gene is what's uh, the dominant gene in our state. So uh, that was really interesting information also. So, um, I mean, what did you think? Well, I, I, I share a lot. I live in, I guess kind of the uh, the test tube, um, whatever of this conversation because East Feliciana Parish has the Idlewall Deer Research Center right there in it, and yeah. uh, it also has some properties here where deer have been brought in from other places and not just in the state over the last uh, several decades. Uh, I say several, all the way back into the seventies. So there's all sorts of rumors and conjecture about uh, the rut and how it plays here, and I'm you know. I obviously am not one to argue or debate with a wildlife biologist, uh, especially one that's the head of the, the program in the entire state, and I'm not going to. Um, but I have noticed some trends on my own property in the middle of East Louisiana Parish that are hard to explain, even given the very logical and common sense approach to some of the stuff that he said about the rut. There are things that happen on my 400 acres. There are very notable differences in some of the deer that I see and take pictures of that it is just really hard to put your finger on what's going on. So I think it's an in-depth discussion. I think for me, because of just how I think and how I analyze my own world just as a unique individual, um, I kind of like some of the things he said because it makes sense and, and it dispels a lot of myth and, and just talking points that we have in, in the deer hunting community about, well, this just must be how it is because so-and-so's grandpa told so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so yeah. so all the way down the line. And it's biology. Yeah. Biology doesn't support that. We, we talk about, like you said, the science says the Wisconsin genetics didn't make it. The science says that the deer adjusted to the photo periods. That's what the science says. But hunting camp says, well, no, nope, we see them rut like this every year. And it's been like that since the seventies. And that's just how it is. So it's really cool to, to pair those things up against one another. And I think also you and I discussed that, you know, kind of after analyzing the whole thing, the whole conversation that started this this podcast episode topic was, why are we seeing so many velvet deer on camera in the daylight? Why are so many yep. of them getting shot? You and I both kind of came down to, it's cool to talk about all these things and analyze them all, and they all have value. But when it really comes down to it, might it just be that, we have such great weather this year as opposed to the last decade of October the 1st that there's always a lot of velvet bucks, but it's hard to kill bucks. It's hard to see bucks, especially early in the season before they're up on their feet a lot doing rutting behavior and stuff. And so maybe it's just that, man, we've been blessed with great weather this year and people are encountering more bucks. It's just that simple. I think, I really think it is that, you know, I, I, I uh, you know, we got on the phone with Jonathan Bordelon. Uh, you know, I, I really had my fingers crossed the whole time that there was going to be some event that, you know, um, extended velvet antler growth this year 
and had an effect on the deer herd as a total in total to where like we all could shoot velvet in, up and through the first week of the season and i i really think what happened or what happened this year with our herd and how many deer being killed in velvet i think there are always this many deer in velvet for the first two to three or four days of the season mm -hmm. but like you said, it's usually 90 degrees, 85 degrees, 70 degrees at 5 a.m., you yeah. know, and I, I think two things are happening. I know a lot of bow hunters that discount the first week or two of the season because it is so hot, and so they're not in the woods. And number two, I think those deer are either nocturnal or they're not coming out in the daytime or they're not patternable at this point in time. And we had some nice weather a day or two or three days before um, the season opened also to where if you had cell cameras or you were able to check your game cameras frequently, yeah. you could pattern something with, you know, it's not like the cold snap hit on, on October 1st. It was here at the end of September. And so I think it was just a combination of hunters getting in the woods because of favorable weather. And then also the fact that the deer were patternable and they were also on their feet. I think it was just a perfect storm in a sense. And the outcome is legitimately the most exciting opening weekend I've seen since owning this company and since having access to our community, if you will, and having people submit pictures and post their kills and blah, blah, blah. I've never seen anything like it, velvet or not, just in the number of deer taken, the number of hunters in the woods. It was really exciting to witness. It was really exciting to watch. And, and I mean, if you were able to get out there, even on Saturday or Sunday, I, I know you had to have had a good hunt. I'm positive of it because Absolutely. it seems that everybody did. So, um, yeah. Well, I can attest to wrap that up. You know, I haven't mentioned this um, to even to you. Personally, I haven't mentioned this. Oh, man, this. I love oh, when yeah. you do this. Um, I honestly didn't. I thought about it while Jonathan was talking, and I thought, well, I guess, okay, so as an archer and as a bow hunter, one of the, the hunts that that uh, plagues me, is plague the right word? Haunts me. Haunts me is the word I'm looking for. That haunts me more than any is a, I missed at, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know any other way to say it other than I just... You know, for lack of a better phrase, shit the bed um, yep. on a deer on October the 5th. Now, this deer was in Mississippi, but it was very close to the line. So as far as, you know, style of hunting, and, and it, it's applicable. You know, I'm in the hey, same what's, region. What's more Louisiana than hunting in Mississippi? No, absolutely. Yeah, That's, absolutely. That might be the most Louisiana bow hunter thing that there yeah. is. So this was probably, oh, uh, man, I'm getting old, but it was probably 10 to 12 years ago but i missed 145 inch nine point at about 15 steps in full velvet on october the 5th and this year no like 12 oh. years ago like i said I, okay. I that's the only deer i've ever shot at gotcha. in velvet gotcha. now i've killed a few smaller bucks back in my day and seen some deer that had kind of scraggly velvet falling off of their horns and stuff but this was on October, so just, just kind of, not to relive the whole story, that's not the point. The point is to say, um, we're talking about whether or not this is a, a, an unusual occurrence or this potentially every year. So this was October the 5th. It was a year where 
Um, we had fair, it wasn't as good as this year, but we had fairly good weather and the season opened in the middle of the week and I didn't really get a chance to hunt till the end of the week weekend. So it was October the 5th before I made my first morning hunt and I didn't have any pictures of this deer. I was hunting in an area where, um, I just was in a good spot and it was a good morning spot where the deer fed back through, um, acorns and browse to a bedding area and I saw a bachelor group of, I can't remember if it was four or five bucks. And the the one that I shot at and missed was by far the biggest one. I know exactly how big he was because someone killed him uh, later oh. on in the year uh, on this the, on the uh, the place where I was hunting. Uh, the club next door to us, uh, a, a girl killed him with a rifle during rifle season. I know exactly what deer he was. But anyway, so it's a four or five bucks. They're all decent bucks. This one only was like a trophy. And all of them were hard-horned. Um, looked like their velvet had been off at least for several days at, at, at the least. And this one buck that I shot at and missed was, I mean, the, the photo picture perfect version of a velvet large, not just a velvet buck, but a large trophy velvet buck. He was perfectly velvet. And I say this because <laughs> he came from a hundred yards away. I watched him with binoculars. I watched him feed all the way to me. And then he stood at 20 yards facing me with his head down on the ground feeding for like five minutes before he ever turned and and gave me a chance to shoot to make a long story short when he finally turned i was a nervous wreck and when i drew back i wasn't very smooth and he kind of saw me and he kind of flinched and i rushed my shot because i was scared he's fixing to take off running and i and i missed him but the point being it haunts me because the velvet thing is i recognized in that moment this is a chance not to just kill a velvet buck but to kill a very large trophy Pope and Young Velvet Buck in the South on October mm-hmm. the 5th. This just doesn't happen. And I just yep. blew it. I'm talking about just blew it, whiffed. And so um, this is an interesting topic for me because, like I said, uh, it probably haunts me more than any deer of any in any state in my entire deer hunting career uh, because of the uniqueness of that. So it's really cool that we got in such a crappy year 2020 in general has just been a crappy year for so many people in so many ways to have been blessed with such a great opening weekend uh a great opening week with great weather and seeing all the the deer uh success stories and also just great hunts that have been had it's been cool so uh now here we are second week of the season and we got a hurricane so y'all <laughs> <laughs> welcome to louisiana yep. and welcome to 2020 Hope you got it in when you could. Yeah, that's uh, that's funny. Yeah, I I I I do think I could feel it uh, going into last week and even before the season started. Like I just think this is going to be a bang up year. Yeah. Um, you know, I was on Sunday morning. My buddy Watson and I were we were driving to this piece of public land, and we were five or ten miles from it. And I looked at him, and I, was, I don't know what time it is, like 5.05 in the morning. I look at him, and I was like, I'm going to kill my third deer this morning. I'm going to kill another deer. And he's like, shut up. No, you're not. And I was like, watch. And uh, I set up in one of the best bow hunting spots I've ever seen in my life. And um, set up in the dark. And 7.34, here comes number three, and smoked her. And actually, 
this is, uh, I've been wanting to tell you this. I've been wanting to tell this to a lot of people. And I'm not saying this is the norm, but I'm saying this was my experience. I, I tout pretty heavily that I'm a speed guy and I like light arrows and I like fixed blades. I don't shoot mechanicals um, because I feel like it robs energy and I don't want something to fail. I don't care what style. That's just, that's, you know, that's my experience. And, um, I shot this doe quartering away on a right side. No, so not quartering away. Perfectly broadside at 36 yards. Um, and when I shot, her leg was back. And I, I shouldn't have shot at that moment. Um, and, uh, and she turned slightly away from me. And so I hit her a little forward, like forward lungs. We definitely would have been a double. Definitely was a double lung, but still forward lungs. I wasn't like up in the shoulders, but since her leg was back, I got her shoulder, and I hit her shoulder. And my arrows. I'm shooting. What am I shooting this year? I'm shooting Easton Carbon Hex Wasp drones, just regular three blade fixed um, steel ferrule, stainless steel tip, and then uh, a nocturnal. My total. Arrow weight is 375 grains, very light. And I'm shooting 325 feet per second, 324, 325. And so um, when I shot her, I heard heard bone, but I also saw that I got really good penetration, like two-thirds of my arrow went through and stopped. And then she started um, uh, plowing out of there. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, like you know, head in the ground, feet, feet, back but, feet running. Yeah, that shoulder broke down. Yeah. Oh no, I shattered both front legs. Uh-huh. Both front legs snapped them in half, and I still got double lung because, like I said, I hit her where I wanted to. Her leg was back, but when she turned away from me, um, I had caught her front left leg, so it was a slight quarter away, um, and. I found her, I don't know, 50 yards away. I, I heard her crash, and she was dead in seconds. But when I went and picked her up and grabbed her, I picked her up by her front legs to flip her over, and they were both toast. Yeah. And and I, <clears throat> when I cleaned her, I was like, well, let's see where I hit her. Like, Let's see what part of the shoulder I got. Because you get high on the shoulder. That's like that's – like, it feels like your ear. It's like cartilage, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but the closer you get to that bone and that front knuckle, the thicker it gets on that plate. And on the front right shoulder where I, the impact was, I had gone through the thickness like right above um, the leg bone in the thickest part of the shoulder, gone through, and then snapped the other main leg bone in half on the other leg. And so I will say this with an asterisk. Don't do this on purpose. It was an accident. I shot her when she was back. Never aimed for the shoulders. And to be honest, it is the first animal in over. Oh man, I don't. I don't. I really. Maybe I should count them up. But well over thirty bow kills. It's the first one I've ever hit in the bones somewhere. And with my setup for my draw length with my bow and everything that I prefer, it worked out for me. So everybody that I swear to God, if somebody else tells me about the ranch ferry one more time i'm gonna if somebody else says shenanigans i'm gonna pistol whip them because i'm uh, it, you don't have to shoot 650 grains to kill a white tail deer you just don't it isn't necessary so um anyway i thought that was cool maybe i got lucky but i'm definitely not trying to shoot yeah, deer there. i, I, I will say no definitely 
there, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Is the probably as good a saying as you can put towards this because speed um, kills, uh, kinetic energy kills, and you really have to go with with uh, what works best for you. And you know, I've shot, I've done what you're talking about, and I've I got very lucky on a real big deer not too long ago in the Midwest where you know I, I'll say this with confidence: if you shoot. 275 or 80 pound mature buck in the midwest the way you did you're oh i'm not no gonna way. say i'm not gonna say you won't kill him but you, you you're flipping a real heavy coin by doing that and but and i say this because i did the same thing and i shot a deer with a bow that's shooting 305 and a 450 grain arrow at 15 yards and hit the wrong part of the shoulder and the arrow deflected straight down and came straight out the bottom of his chest and it killed him and it blew a big hole in him but you know it's just an inch you don't want that to happen i mean all that had yeah. to do was to go the wrong way and that deer runs off and gets some i mean he's gonna die but because i'm in his in his vitals there and in his chest but he's gonna go somewhere where i can't find him there's not a lot of blood in my case i'm shooting a, a, a grim reaper which is a very large exit hole almost always and that arrow went down through the bottom of him and it opened up a humongous hole in the bottom of his mm-hmm. underneath, you know, basically his armpit and he just poured blood and he was easy to find. But when I found him two and a half hours later, he was still alive. You oh, know? wow. Yeah. I mean, still, I mean, he was, he couldn't get up out of his bed. I, I, I sat, I sat there and literally watched him lay his head down and die. But this was two and a half hours after the shot. And this yeah. is a deer that I shot at 15 yards and I hit him. If, if his leg had not been back, it would have been an absolute 10 ring perfect bottom yep. of the lung top of the heart straight through him he wouldn't have went 100 yards if that and if yep. he went 100 it was just on adrenaline but with his leg back it hit shoulder and and did all kind of craziness to that arrow so but to your point the same thing can happen with a light arrow heavy arrow it's, it's it's just about shot placement and it's about shooting the right setup that works best for you so that you can make the best shot the best shot if you make the best, like you said, you admitted you shouldn't have shot with her leg back. It worked out because you have I, a, a I good setup. I know why I did. Yeah, I know why I did. Yeah. You're right-handed. You're right-handed, right? Yeah. Okay, so when when um, so the deer came out at my 10 o'clock, so my front left, and then they walked straight across uh, my front at, um, at 35 or so yards. And um, the lead doe, which was the biggest, and there were no fawn. I never saw a fawn all weekend. Um, I saw deer on every hunt, but um, the lead doe was what I shot. She was the biggest one because all the other there were two with her at the time. And then after I killed her, four more, four came out into the same spot trying to figure out what happened to her, mm-hmm. it, it, like where my arrow laid. And I didn't realize there were five does there, but I killed the first one, and um she came out behind a tree. I picked a spot where when she got there, I would kill her. And that spot was at my one o'clock. Well, one o'clock in it off of the deer stand is a like a shooting anything past 12 o'clock when you're right handed is weird. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened when I came to full draw, my elbow hit the tree trunk and I yeah. couldn't come to full draw and I had to readjust. And when I finally like, like scooted up in my chair and um, leaned forward slightly and drew again, my elbow was resting right against the tree. And that was just a weird sensation. Like it didn't 
mess my form up, but it was just, you're not used mm-hmm. to see your elbow touching yep. something while you're shooting. And so that split second, and this is why it all matters. Like it's why everything matters so much, because the only thing that really matters in bow hunting is the very last thing you do. And that's make a good shot. And it's incredible how a flip of a coin can, can mm-hmm. make that a successful second or the worst second in your life. And, um, and so when I redrew my bow, she had moved her leg back and I was so focused on getting the pin right on her. And the fact that I was trying to get good form with my elbow touching this tree when I released and I heard the, it wasn't a pop, like a balloon normally. It was that crack. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh man. And she took off and the arrow fell out of her. But like I said, I got, I almost got blood an inch or two um, up to the, below the fletching. So I got a, I actually got a full pass through, like I punctured the other side of her i there wasn't just one hole there were two holes but my arrow had stayed in her front left shoulder and that's where i dug it out when i cleaned it yeah. but uh anyway yeah so the ranch ferry and saddles aren't my favorite topics so yeah well we just talk about the it. takeaway is be comfortable with your gear and make good shots and if still you made it happen yeah if you if you well if you pay attention to your gear and you shoot the right stuff. You don't shoot what the commercials tell you to. You don't shoot what Correct. your buddy at the club you hunted at shoots because he kills a bunch of deer. But you shoot the bow and the setup that works best for you. That will make not only the confidence factor, but just the overall uh, mitigation of issues that are bound to happen um, will be more in your favor uh, more often and all of those kind of things. That's why bow hunting is, I could take your 30 out 6 you could take my 270 and we're all about in the same boat, no matter what, right? No matter well, whether I buy Corlock bullets or I buy whatever kind of bullets, we're all kind of in the same boat. But my bow is my bow. Your bow is your bow. And um, that's what why we love this, because it's so unique and it's such a well, challenge. And, and so... I'm going to say this and then we'll end it. The most important thing, Locke, is that I got it done. You got you, as opposed to last year. Yeah. So you need it. You need your favorite thing. You yeah. You got it done. I, I'm glad. Did you get did the, did you get your paycheck for it at the end? I just wonder because most people oh, that oh, get it getting, done, they're you know they get paid for getting the job done. I'm just wondering if you got paid for getting your I, job done. I actually was emotionally bankrupt last year, so no, I uh, I think I actually was in debt at the end of the year once I. So got you it broke even, okay? So if, getting getting it done not. for you was just getting you broke even. My getting it done for me was just the season running out and me not having to endure anymore. No, I'm talking uh, about this. Suffering. I'm talking about this weekend. Like oh, you got weekend. it done, so I'm wondering if you got paid for getting it done because people that get it done are getting a job done, which hence I there's did, some I compensation. Did, I did get I did get paid, man. I got I've got three deer uh, of meat. Yeah, there you go. That's, that's my okay. payment. I guess. Yeah, fair enough. So, fair I know enough. you love that saying, man. I, I well, like it. I said, I just. You know, anyway, let's not go down there. Hey, guys, please make sure. Go check out Relentless Boats at RelentlessBoatsLA.com. Go check out the deals at ScreeGear.com. Uh, great supporters of the podcast, and we greatly appreciate them, and we greatly appreciate you listening to us go round and around and up and down all the time. But, hey, at least we get good guests, right, Kyler? Finally. It's not yes. just us. We, You know, you, you listen to us, but you listen to us to get the guests. So, hey, guys, have a great uh, second weekend. If you get the chance to hunt, uh, if if – 
most of us are going to be affected by this weather so be safe take care of your family and your neighbors through this hurricane and hopefully when we get back on the other side of this some of those food plots will start growing from the from the rain then and the moisture that we're going to get and we'll all be back in the woods maybe we'll get another cool front huh Never possibly know. maybe all right guys all right, we'll talk to you soon thanks everybody for listening good luck Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. If you have anybody you'd like to hear on the show, reach out to us at info at louisianabowhunter.com. And if you want to help support Louisiana Bowhunter, go by your local archery shop and pick up some merchandise. If you don't have any at your local shop, let us know and we'll reach out to them. Or pick up your gear at louisianabowhunter.com and we'll ship it out to you same day. See you next week.